Hello and welcome to Logicast, the AWS news podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm John Goodall, lead cloud engineer at Logicata, uh, and I'm usually here. And unfortunately, I'm not joined by Carl Robinson today, who uh, is otherwise unavailable. But we wish him well, and he should be back with us next week. To combat the lack of Carl's stunning presence and personality, we have two very special guests this week. Uh, so first of all, we have Girish McKean from, uh, I don't know where you're from, just going to uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah, sure, John. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, good morning. So uh, I'm Girish Mukim. Uh, I am working as AWS Solution Architect in IBM. I am basically from India, if that's what you were asking, uh, John, initially. So I am in Canada at the moment, in Toronto area. So it's been three years in Canada. I was in the like, US for a few years. So it's uh, like US, Canada, and India. So if you ask me. And then I have an infrastructure background. Like I worked uh, more than a decade in uh, infrastructure, specifically databases. So, and then I transitioned into AWS Solution Architect, and that's what I'm doing for my bread and butter. So uh, very happy to be here with uh, both of you. Good stuff. Uh, and also we have Matt Morgan. So where are you from, Matt? Where do you work? What do you do for a living? Hey, John and Garish. Uh, very happy to be here. Uh, I reside in the D.C. suburbs in Maryland. Um, I work at uh, as a director of engineering at a small uh, live selling platform called Comet Sold. Uh, and I've been there since December. Uh, my background is in app dev. Uh, I got into leadership, oh, I don't know, about four years ago. Uh, I still try to keep my hands dirty as much as possible. Um, just just uh, have to stay off the critical path. Uh, and um, uh, so it, my career arc is, is almost the opposite of uh, Girish's in that uh, I started as, a, as an application developer. Someone else managed infrastructure. Now I lead an infrastructure team uh, in addition to some other teams. So, um, you know, kind of a kind of a, uh, interesting crisscross going on here. Very happy to be mm -hmm. here. Uh, I've also been a community, AWS community builder since uh, 2020, uh, which is, uh, I think, sort of how we all connected. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So... Uh... My background is kind of similar to Girish's. I've done this on the podcast a few times, but obviously not everyone will have heard it. I'm cloud engineer, but that's platform DevOps and all that kind of thing, rather than app dev. I try and stay away from that as much as humanly possible because deploying iOS apps is awful. Right, so in normal fashion, we have five of the articles from the weekly newsletter that Carl puts out. Picked five of them, and we're going to go through them in kind of a bit of a deeper dive, see what we think, and... Uh, Let's see where we go from there. The first of which is a hell of a mouthful to get out. We have from the AWS News blog, new Amazon FSX for NetApp on tap now supports worm protection for regulatory compliance and ransomware protection. That's awful. That's enormous. But it's a Jeff Barr article, and we always like picking a Jeff article because they're usually pretty good. I know in the preamble, uh, Girish infrastructure, this is kind of your area. So uh, why don't you come in on this one and, and tell us what you think? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> FSX is supported on AWS for like uh, three, four years now. So that is a new uh, like development there where they are adding like Snaplog. So Snaplog is something like which is for uh, read-only, uh, uh, like uh, what you call mount. So like it's like for compliance. If you see, right, like I can relate it to S3 object logs. If like I'm sure like many of us are familiar with that. So exactly same like S3 has uh, two modes, which is like. Uh, compliance and governance. Here, Snaplock is uh, having like uh, enterprise and uh, compliance. So it is more of like compliance, like putting your auditing logs in the 
mount and nobody should touch it nobody even like uh, there are two more because one more like, trusts your uh, storage uh, administrator like if you call it the enterprise uh, mode and other compliance even you are not trusting your system at so nobody can even touch change retention delete uh, that file system or objects in that file system so all these are like compliance related changes and it's really uh, like uh, catering to that security aspect of the cloud so that is what uh, snap lock is from onta right so that is i i find it so quite interesting because like it's not new like we already have uh, uh, as i said like object lock from few years like in s3 and it's exactly same use case but like on tap is fsx uh, uh, like uh, this has a fsx flavor and people, like uh, businesses which are using like netapp fsx this is a use case for them so it's interesting I know in the preamble, Matt, you said that you uh, looked after some infrastructure teams. Is this something that yeah. you're going to have to see coming past your desk? Do you think? It isn't. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, I'm most of the, I guess, pretty much all the applications that I work on are, are stateless, uh, and also uh, get into the serverless space stuff. So, so generally, I'm I'm storing things on S3. That's uh, I haven't had. Uh, I didn't even know what this was. I'll be honest with you. I, in, in my only comment, the only thing that really stuck out at me as I was reading this uh, is this checkbox. I acknowledge that enabling Snaplock will permanently allow files on this volume to be committed to an immutable worm state. I think immutable worm state is just an incredible phrase, uh, and uh, in, from an industry that is, uh, you know, uh, committed to to uh, putting incredible phrases in, into our vocabulary. <laughs> it's a shame that we don't have Carl on because he does love an acronym. Likes to say that he's built his entire career on knowing what acronyms mean. So it's a real shame. Mm. Uh, the only thing I would personally add from an engineering perspective to this is is less about engineering, more about the cost. Because obviously, if it's an immutable state and you can't delete the volume until everything's expired and you could set infinite expiry or a century of expiry, you could quite easily be paying a lot of money for a long time, something you didn't actually need. So I suppose that's kind of why there's the enterprise mode where you can kind of test things and make sure it's working. And then your trusted system administrator could go and clean everything up and then set up a compliance mode instead. Yeah. Um, so that is like, yeah. that is the interesting aspect you brought the cost. Definitely that is something to watch for when you are going with a compliance mode. Uh, because that is what purpose of it and then it can like surge your cost for sure yeah it's it's definitely worth noting uh, that they do have tiering in this in the same way that s3 has intelligent tiering so does um this enormous mouthful that i'm not going to repeat so it does have volume data tiering so that if it's things that you're reading quite regularly then you can kind of get them relatively quickly and if it's things that are just there because you need to hold them like tax records or whatever that you don't read very often outside the first few months then they're there and they're fine and they're not going anywhere, but they're cheaper to hold. Anything else yeah. we want to bring in on this one? Yeah, not really. Like we just uh, talked about what this feature is and then how it is enhancing uh, FSX. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that should be it. Like it covers a lot. Cool. Excellent. So seeing as uh, Matt, you say you're a bit more serverless, let's talk about code pipeline. <laughs> I personally sure. am reasonably familiar with this, but only because I passed my DevOps Pro not that long ago, and it's featured very heavily on the training. Reading through this one, it did feel like I was going through the training course again. Um, but this is this is a little bit telling you what it is, and there's a little bit of um, kind of comparing it to things like 
Jenkins, GitHub Actions, and, and what have you. So is this something that you guys use internally? It is not. Uh, so I, I have I have used Code Pipeline a little bit, but I've never used it for day to day. I think it's you know um, I think it's a it's an okay option. I'm I'm not opposed to Code Pipeline. Um, the um, you know I've I've often found myself coming into uh, an application that's already using something else, uh, and um, and I think that the that the space of of saying okay well. You know, we don't want to use Jenkins anymore, for example, which I've, I've done a couple of times. Uh, it's kind of one of my plays. Uh, but um, and then moving into Code Pipeline, I often find myself I'm working with uh, teams that are not real familiar with the AWS ecosystem. I think that's a little bit of a barrier to entry here. It's also interesting to me uh, that um, you know AWS has this new product called Code Catalyst, which seems like it directly competes with Code Pipeline. Uh, it does a lot of the same things, um, but in some ways it feels a little bit it's a little bit more like GitHub Actions, and I and it actually I've been using GitHub Actions quite a lot lately, uh, and I I think that that the real driver for me I mean obviously when you know when you're choosing a CI/CD pipeline uh, you want reliability you want speed you want all all of these kinds of kinds of things but what's most important to me is uh, the developer experience do developers connect to this tool. Are they going to be productive there? Can they mutate their own pipeline uh, and be successful without having to reach out to a DevOps engineer who might have, you know, nine other things ahead of in, in their queue? Uh, and um, I'm not sure Code Pipeline is quite there yet, or it, it's it's not exactly that tool, and that might be why uh, AWS is piloting a, an alternate tool. It's an interesting one. It is. <laughs> Um, because sorry to cut you off there. It's an interesting no because code code pipeline was launched in, in what 2015. And back then it was awful. It's gotten steadily better since then, but I think people remember your first impressions matter, even in tech where we are massive oh, yeah. proponents of putting things out before they're really ready and just kind of iterating based on feedback. But I think in this case it's it's come to bite them. Because as you say, I mean DevOps is kind of my background as well. And I've done um a little bit with code pipeline, but just kind of because I needed to stay in the AWS ecosystem rather than by mm -hmm. choice. It was no, everything stays in there. We use co-commit, we use co-pipeline, it all stays internally. Okay, that's a thing. But given the choice, I'd use GitHub Actions or GitLab CI or, or something else. Um, and I think it's a victim of its own poor launch, so to speak. It could be, yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was just going to add, I mean, there, there there are some real advantages to using a tool like that. And I don't think Code Catalyst, which which I did use recently in a hackathon project, I don't think Code Catalyst has quite the uh, AWS ecosystem integration that Code Pipeline has. So you can listen to all kinds of events via EventBridge uh, from your Code Pipeline if, if you want to do that, if you want to uh, collect metrics, if you want to notify. Uh, there's a lot of great integrations there. Never mind IAM, which um, you know you no longer. You, GitHub Actions has a really nice OIDC uh, uh, connection that you can make now. But you know, prior to that, people were putting their secrets, their long-lived keys in GitHub, and you know, and and given that choice, uh, that that does push me toward co Code Pipeline as uh, possibly a better solution. Yeah, security. Just one aspect to that, right? Like just want to add there, right? The code pipeline, we are talking about using complete cloud native AWS uh, solutions for everything, right? Like, for example, uh, the code commit or code build everything. So is there any use case? I just, I'm not from DevOps, so I just want to understand your take on that. Is there any use case where 
we don't want to use code pipeline we still want to use code commit for our repo or we want to use uh, code build for testing and integration so are there use case for that in the industry people are using yes uh, in theory it could i mean technically it could be done it could but a lot of what i've seen outside of consulting land uh, and really with some of our customers as well, is that they want their code to live with their CI, CD, CD solution. Gone are the days where you're trying to get Bitbucket to talk to a Jenkins server and have Jenkins polling Bitbucket and all that, because that was awful. It was horrible, and it was not a nice thing to have to configure. When you look at um, mm. GitHub and GitHub Actions or GitLab and GitLab CI, or even code commit with code pipeline, there's a lot better native or Code Catalyst, there's a lot better native integrations between the source and the running of the pipeline. So technically you could do it, um, but I don't think yeah. it's a thing that happens hugely often. Outside of the odd thing where people are still running Jenkins servers on an EC2, but they're using code commit. So I think that's still a workflow, but that's probably more because people okay. needed to get off of on-prem, but didn't have the time, money, inclination, skill set, whatever, to get off of Jenkins. I, have, I haven't really yeah. seen many... Because in, uh, like, sorry. No, I was just going to yeah. say, I haven't seen many... Yeah, because I was on one of the... Aspects. Yeah, sorry, Matt. I just want to add Go that. For it. Because like, just to uh, like continue what John just said, right? So we have a use case proposed, like a uh, code pipeline, and this was the exact same developer... Uh, uh, like what you call a, a reaction to that. And then we need to rethink like uh, what are the pros and cons of other solutions as well. Yeah, so I just want to add that because I see developers are not so happy like going with code pipeline compared to Jenkins and other tools. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I had left to add there is I, I've really never seen an example of, of uh, code commit in the wild, but uh, I did work on a team for quite some time that used code deploy only of, of that chain. So we didn't use code pipeline, but we use, did use code deploy. Well, code deploy is a little bit of a different beast. It's still in that code family, but it's a bit of a different beast, Steve, <laughs> because it's what you end up using for all your, your blue-greens, for your Lambda deployments, for your ECS, all that kind of thing. So the fact that you're using code deploy doesn't preclude you from using something that isn't sure. build, commit, pipeline, whatever, because it's in that same kind of family, but it is very much a different mm -hmm. tool. Yeah, it's a little bit of a strength that you can pick and choose among those, but it also probably means that some of the options then get used less. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of um, my sort of experience of what I've seen with some of our customers, code commit is used very occasionally for very minor things. Um, one of the tools that we use to help people manage their organizations default to using code commit, code pipeline, with code build, because it's kind of all in the same ecosystem rather than a this is the best tool for this job and it'll talk to that tool and so on. It's just because it was kind of what it defaulted yep. to. Cool. So from pipelines and building and developers not liking things, let's talk about something that accountants are going to like that developers are also going to hate because they hate everything. Uh, we have from the AWS Compute blog, detecting and stopping recursive loops in AWS Lambda functions. Uh, again, I'm going to go to Matt for this one because you're kind of more serverless focused. What do you want to What do you want to say on this one? Uh, so, so I'm I'm really glad that the the Lambda team is addressing some customer pain points. Now, I haven't had this particular one uh, where I had a um, you know a big bill because of uh, something in a loop, but that's probably because I um, I don't know I listened to a lot of podcasts as I was getting started in serverless and I heard the horror stories, so I was a little careful there. But I I mean I think I think that's uh, that's a good thing. Now we need 
uh, we need to break recursive loops with object lambda because I'm a little bit more with S3 object lambda. I'm a little bit more worried about that one than, than this one, but it, still any progress is good. And I think that this, I don't have any insider information, but I, but I do expect they're not gonna stop here. They're gonna keep going and they're gonna try to uh, close some of the other gaps. Um, this, in, in my view, this progression of, of you know, trying to address these cust potential customer pain points uh, uh, started last year when, when we got that throttling button on the Lambda console where you can press the button, uh, your concurrency goes to zero and any currently executing Lambda functions stop. No new Lambda functions of that uh, particular function can, can be launched until you uh, restore the concurrency. I've used this feature uh, and and uh, prior to it being launched, I wished it existed. Uh, and then it appeared one day. Uh, that was a really good feature. Uh, this one, like I said, never impacted me personally, but I'm happy to see it. Uh, I don't, it, it, there is a caveat in there. If, if uh, you actually wanna have uh, a recursive uh, loop in your function, then you know you have to do something extra. But I wouldn't advise anyone doing that. Just, just think of a different solution if you can. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm excited to see them uh, continue in this direction and, and you know, make this uh, safer for newcomers so they don't get huge bills and scared away. I mean, newcomers is a good point, right? Because serverless has an aggressive free tier. I mean, Lambda in particular has an aggressive free tier. SNS and SQS have also equally aggressive free tiers. So you could very quickly not notice that you had a problem until it started causing you actual financial implications because you get what is it four hundred thousand um implications or something stupidly big a million messages on sqs for nothing so it could sit there quite happily just calling itself calling itself calling itself not costing you anything you wouldn't notice it until three weeks down the line and oh my god where's this bill come from yeah even even um billing alarms uh have have uh, up to 24 hour delay on them so you could you could end up with quite a sizable bill, uh, even if you've done everything right in terms of uh, alerting. Yeah, I mean, the billing being eventually consistent, as most things are, is that's one of the few places where it's irritating, I think, because the recommendations are, as you say, set cloud trial, set cloud watch, set billing alarms and all those sorts of things. And they'll kind of help, but they don't stop it from happening. And yeah. this, as you say, is definitely a move towards stopping these things from happening. It'll still let it run through 16 times, which seems binary expansion, maybe? Is it an arbitrary decision? I'm not sure, because I can't think of a genuine pattern, and I suppose this is why the, the default has gone this way, where you would want it to recurse on itself. I can't think of anything where you'd want that to happen. And if you do want something to be reprocessed kind of more than once, run it through not the same input source, possibly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, anything you want to come in on there, Girish? Yeah, I just saw like uh, in that article, right? There is an option to go to default. Like for example, if you don't want this feature for some reason, right? Like as uh, John's saying, we can't think of any use case which we need recursive uh, uh, pattern. But if you need, there is an option to uh, just go back and then disable this feature. I, like I saw this in an article, so that is an interesting thing. It will be giving you that option, uh, but default behavior is like using this new feature. 
Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's worth saying, though, to the listeners that uh, it's not a toggle that you can just go into your account settings and, and yeah. flip it back off again. You do have to go through AWS support, and they will probably want to know what the workload is, what the use case is, because, I mean, this comes back to the customer obsession um, leadership principle. They want to make sure that you're kind of being looked after there, I would assume, is, is the logic. Perfect, yeah. Okay, so with that, let's move on to our fourth article, Achieving Operational Excellence with Designed Considerations for AWS Organizations SCPs. Seem to be picking the really long titles this week. I don't know how that's happened, but we've had some really long ones so far. This is on the AWS Compute Operations and Migrations blog, and SCPs, for those that aren't familiar, again, feature pretty heavily in the Developer Associate and the DevOps Pro exams, something that we as Logicata do um, for our customers quite a bit to help them manage their organizations, and it stands for a service control policy, and that allows you to enable or disable features, services, actions at an account, or in this case, as they're talking about here, at an organizational unit or an entire organization level. Uh, I'm going to hand this one over to Girish, I think, because this is more operationally infrastructure that kind of area. So uh, anything you want to say here? Uh, yeah, for sure. Like SCP is something like uh, we uh, use during uh, AWS organizations for sure. So this we can attach, like we have used SCP, not a lot like where we are uh, like uh, having it on, not on uh, all the AOUs. But definitely there is a there is a option like there are uh, quota limitations you need to care about like uh, it's not a whole lot like if five SCPs per account or per OU so that is one uh, aspect to it but it's quite useful when you want to have a broader view of like restrictions like more than allowing things you want to restrict for example you don't want people using service catalog because like uh, you don't see use case for using it in particular organization then you can use SCP to just not you know, like allowing people to use it. That is like for course actions, right? Like, uh, uh, mind you like this SCP, right? What I have seen, you cannot, like you should not use even you technically can for fine-grained access. Like uh, it is just course uh, correction sort of thing. As I explained, like service catalog, if you don't want user to use it, use SCP. But not like, uh, uh, like something you want to deny users for deleting S3 objects. So SCP is not for that. You just need to go back to old ways of uh, denying that through uh, like resource policies for S3, S3 bucket, right? So that is the differentiation between using IAM uh, policies or object policies, identity policies uh, versus uh, SCP. But SCP is, uh, comes into course action of things. Yeah, I'm just going to touch yeah. on the service limits because you kind of mentioned that there. Uh, the current published quotas are five SCPs attached to the root. So that's five for the whole organization. Another five per OU. You can have a maximum nesting of five levels of OU under the root. So now you're getting up to seriously big numbers. You can have another five directly attached to each account. So you quite big numbers here but there is a maximum limit of 1000 for the entire organization and each scp document must be no bigger than 5120 bytes that's not bits that's not characters that's bytes so these are fairly big documents that you can write and you can write quite a large number of them interesting as well that girish they're touched on s3 that's again mentioned in the article uh, where they recommend rather than using SCPs to block from S3, particularly in the case if you're in a uh, very large organization and you're starting to hit service limits, then you could go back to using bucket policies and resource policies rather than using an SCP. Uh, 
What we've seen a little bit um, within our customer base is this is used to prevent people from doing things like having particularly large EC2 instances in non-production accounts. That's quite a good use case for it because it's it's not coarse, it's not fine-grained, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. So in a non-prod account, you can't spin up anything bigger than a, a medium because generally you don't need it, you know, subject to what your business is doing. Um, so it can be used for things like that as well. But as Giris quite rightly says, it's generally used for more coarse actions. Uh, anything from you, Matt, before we move on to our last one? Yeah, I mean, this is this is an area I've only kind of uh, touched the surface. Uh, I did, uh, for fun, spin up my own AWS organization earlier this year. Uh, and uh, I did add a couple of SCPs, but I feel like I'm, I'm still a novice in that space. Um, one thing I'll mention is uh, I did work on a team that attempted to use, uh, that it attempted to achieve the aims of SCPs using permission boundaries, and that was incredibly painful. Uh, so if you if you do need to limit the services that uh, developers can use, please uh, do like I intend to do and learn all about SCPs. <laughs> That's an interesting one, that, because um, the only other thing worth mentioning in the difference between permission boundaries and SCPs is permissions boundaries do not apply to the root user. SCPs can apply to the root user if you're kind of being specific about it. And because they're denied by default, if you block everyone from doing everything in an account, that includes the root user. So one thing to be aware of there is if you do get an SCP wrong, you can't fix it using the root user. You don't tend to need to, though, because you don't apply SCPs to the management account of the organization. They just physically won't apply, even if it's attached at the root level. So you can undo your mistake, but maybe not in the account that's impacted by that mistake. Yeah, and that restrict, like if you ask me, right, yeah, when you are having SCP and not having like official access what AWS is suggesting there, then like when you are moving uh, accounts around your OUs, because that is a use case for organization. If you want to move accounts as well, like as part of that uh, OUs, then SCP, like which has a bearing on it. So this might start showing its issues if you don't have that operational excellence, what uh, like this article is talking about. So definitely a good article to refer to. Excellent. Just conscious of time, uh, we have one left. So we're going to move on to, and I apologize to anyone that does go and read this, this enormous article from the new stack. It's Amazon Prime Video's microservices move doesn't lead to a monolith after all. Now, we've spoken about this on this podcast. We've spoken about this in the community builders um, chats, and it's generally been in the news quite a lot when it sort of happened and it's died off a little bit. For those that are unfamiliar, the Prime Video team, one part of the Prime Video team, which is the um, quality of streaming service, so that very small service that um, controls sort of the bit rates and things that it's sending down the wire, uh, re-evaluated how they'd built their application and moved away from lambdas and step functions into EC2-backed ECS, as I think what they ended up doing. And the internet was up in arms. Everyone was going, oh, it's the death of serverless. And in truth, it kind of wasn't. Um, it was just redefining the boundaries of one part of one service. So it's an odd one. I'm going to open this to the floor, generally, see so who wants to come in on this one, because I have very strong opinions on this. But um, yeah, I've, I've spoken about this at length already. So I'm going to open the floor. Anyone that wants to come in. Yeah, I'll go. Um, so, I mean, <clears throat> I think um, I, th I think the takeaway that we should have from something like this is, uh, is that when we're designing systems, 
we should understand service limits. It's 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 sort of the, one of the most important things when you get into managed services. Never mind serverless, any kind of managed service. Understanding what is you know what are your quotas? They're all published. Uh, they're all easily available. You can even find out which ones can be changed and what it takes to to change them. Uh, that's a really important thing. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that the the uh, prime service team missed that or didn't understand that, but it's clearly something changed, right? Something some somewhere along the line, uh, the, uh, the 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 technical choices that they made uh, encountered scaling issues with with service limits. I um, I've spoken about this a little bit before. I think service limits are actually uh, can can be really helpful to us, just as long as we understand them. We don't we don't run up against them in production, uh, you know. Because um, the way I see this is that uh, every service, every application has a limit. In some cases, that limit is published. You can read it and you can plan for it. In other cases, you have to encounter it. Right, because if you're running your own infrastructure, if you're you know running in a data center, running a database, there's a max number of connections that that database will be able to handle, max number of queries it can execute uh, simultaneously, and um, you know, if if it's not a published limit, then that means that it's just some limit somewhere, uh, and you could reach that limit during an important uh, event and uh, suffer an outage as a result. So, um, you know, I mean that. that I, th I think, um, you, you know, I, again, I, I'm not uh, impeaching the, the intentions of the team here, but, uh, you know, it, it does it does seem clear to me that that somewhere along the line, either either analysis was missed or, or the situation changed. And that's why they had to make a change. So I think um, it was definitely a uh, change in situation because it does say in the article here, and I'm sure there was other factors as well, that they managed to win the rights for NFL Thursday night football, which not being in the States, I don't know how big that is, but 16.6 .6 million real-time viewers sounds, you know, fairly big. Um, it's probably the equivalent oh. of the UK match of the day on a Sunday night with just millions of people all at the same time are expecting the service to run. So I expect they never expected that as an option. Um, and that's probably part of what changed. Yeah, I, I might challenge that just a little bit. I mean, they, they are Amazon, they are Prime, they are one of the big players in this space. I mean, they have to know that they're going to get somewhat big anyway. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it can be a perfectly valid choice to build for a certain scale, uh, find unexpected success, or maybe it comes sooner than you expect, and then have to have to make a, a change. And it certainly makes sense to make that kind of change when it's appropriate. I think the article does touch on something very interesting that I did want to highlight um, and that it said that most services cost more to build than they do to run because in a tech company, sure. your kind of your salaries. top three expenses are salaries, office space, and then it's probably your server bill, right? but it's usually your salary first. So anything that lets you get to market faster with a lower salary bill, and then you worry about running costs later, maybe you re-architect it, maybe you just take it on the chin and eat the cost, whatever, but it, you've gotten to market that much faster. So that's I think, definitely worth touching on. Um, we are running out of time. So uh, Girish, is there anything else you want to uh, come in on this one? Not really. Like uh, Matt and you covered it so well, so I want the audience to leave with those comments. So, yeah, so nicely covered. 
Okay, excellent. That's a good way to end. So this is the end of, I didn't even announce the episode at the start of uh, this episode of Logicast, the AWS news podcast by Logicata. I've been John Goodall. We've had Girish McKeem and Matt Morgan with us. This is available on all major streaming services. You can download the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We are also on YouTube. And hopefully we'll be back to the much slicker presenting of Carl Robinson next time. Uh, Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you uh, next week. Thanks so much. Thank you.